talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Looks like the Bulldogs will need a Game 7 to win the OHL Final. Puck drops here Wednesday night at 7 p.m. See you in the dog pound. Oh, here's Scott Thompson. He does that now. He's getting so big it scares me. Sorry. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Yeah, Bulldogs. Uh, last night, unfortunately, uh, man, it just uh, didn't look good. And in Windsor, lost uh, to the Windsor Spitfires, which means a Game 7 back here on Wednesday. So we get to watch uh, when they win the OHL championship. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right. Good luck, dogs. Uh, cheering you on for uh, Wednesday's Game 7. Two most exciting words in sport. Game 7. All right. There we go. Uh, lots going on today. Lots to talk about. Uh, the big news is, well, let's start locally. Uh, Bob Bertina, uh, running for mayor again. Remember Bob Bertina, morning man for, uh, from this radio station. And of course, uh, mayor of the city of Hamilton has announced today that he is jumping back into the ring. Uh, no word from Mayor Fred yet. Uh, Keenan Loomis obviously jumping into, uh, the fray as well. So, uh, that's going to make for an interesting fair as we head closer to that. Also, uh, the, the real big, uh, news today is, uh, after just even just a day or two ago saying that um, they were following the science and, and didn't need to to uh, change any of the regulations the feds have uh, changed quite a few of the uh, traveling protocols and vaccine mandates and such and uh, we'll play some clips uh, in just a sec uh, well no let's do this first because there's another aside to this which you might get a chuckle out of all right so uh here is the federal minister of transport talking about now we have to make uh, a clarification here there is some protocol that's changing but uh, you know this is largely due to the backlogs and things like masking won't really change backlogs so here's what the minister uh, federal minister of transport had to say about masking travelers on federally regulated planes and trains still need to wear a mask masks are an effective way of reducing transmission especially in areas with restricted space such as onboard planes, trains, or cruise ships. All right. And in regard, so let's start this backwards, in regard to travelers who are coming into Canada, so not Canadians, those are coming in to visit, here's what the minister had to say. As for travelers coming to Canada by air, land, and marine, there are no changes. All travelers entering Canada must continue to follow all entry requirements, including vaccination and using a RiveCan. All right, so here's where it gets interesting. As of June 20th, uh, here's what is going to change as far as the uh, mandates and vaccine. On June 20th, our government will suspend the requirement to be vaccinated in order to board a plane or train in Canada. All right, and um, uh, here's what the federal minister uh, of internal government affairs had to say about this is not due not due to the delays we're seeing at airports. This announcement is not about shortening wait times that are currently being experienced at some of Canada's airports. As you know, these wait times are mainly caused by staffing shortages. 
The adjustments we're making today are based on science and they will not have an impact immediately on these airport delays. We remain committed to reducing the wait times at Canada's airport. We have already taken a number of steps to improve this situation. All right, and uh, the minister saying there this is mostly a staffing issue. Well, of course it's a staffing issue because it takes more staff to implement the protocol as as well as on top of security and boarding and everything else that is involved in, in getting you on a plane. So, of course, it's a staffing issue. So if you're asking the staff to do things that they were doing during a COVID pandemic and now tr- try to do the same thing with a full load of passengers, well, of course, it's a staffing issue. There simply isn't enough staff staff to do everything you were doing during the global pandemic and then do that now with a full passenger load when things have opened up. You can't run the system as if things are closed when they have begun to open up. So yes, of course, in the end, it's always a staffing issue and bodies to get uh, the job done. Uh, Another interesting issue uh, which came out is Ottawa has also dropped the vaccine mandates for truckers and federal employees. So there'll be no more freedom convoys. There you go. Uh, and you might remember when when all of this started and uh, the prime minister was putting the boots to everybody, 90% of them were vaccinated and 90% of the population in general. And really all this fuss was about the 10% that either can't or won't for some reason and will probably never get a vaccination. So again, rather than celebrating the great work that all of us have done, the 90% of the people in getting vaccinated were vilifying uh, the 10% to, uh, you know, I guess make some noise and win an election. So, uh, <laughs> no, easy boy, easy way. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of more like one of these. Look out, here they come. All right, uh, enough of that. We'll be talking about the Emergencies Act and such coming up a little later on. Also, uh, locally, City of Hamilton and Commune Auto are announcing a car sharing service. This is very cool. We're going to talk about this coming up uh, very shortly. Also, McMaster researchers are at it again and have developed a test system that you can use through your phone. We're going to talk about that and get epidemiologist Timothy Sly's uh, take on the uh, mandate dropping that we have seen or that we've seen been announced in the last day or so so uh, that's just the first hour hang on for the rest all right the city of hamilton and communito are announcing the launch of a new car sharing service in hamilton called Communi- uh, communito flex yesterday 25 flex cars deployed in areas uh, across wards one two and three the launch of the service made possible by the city council's approval last year of free floating car share pilot programs and uh, communito is the oldest and largest uh, Canadian car share organization and uh, the branch manager, uh, manager for Southwest Ontario, Janet McLeod, is with us now. Janet, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Yeah, uh, doing well. Thanks so much for having me. So talk about Communito. What is it? What's the objective? How does it work? Yeah, so Communito, we're um, a car sharing organization and um, basically we enable people to have access to uh, vehicles without having to own one personally or um, you know you can if you own two cars you can go down to one that kind of thing because you have always have access through uh, through a membership uh, in our program so um, that's kind of the the basics of how it works and um, how long has this been around and what other cities are using this 
Yeah, so uh, locally in Hamilton, we've been operating uh, since 2009. So coming up on 13 years, um, your listeners may have originally known us as Hamilton Car Share or later mm. as Community Car Share. And then we became part of the Communoto organization uh, just over four years ago. Um, and Communoto, as you mentioned, um, they're the oldest car sharing organization in Canada, founded in 1994 in Quebec City. So we have a uh, a long history with Kiminoto and um, our former organization, you know, we've been around since 1998 in southwestern Ontario, uh, started in Kitchener-Waterloo. So we have a long history of car sharing, whether with our, our local branch or Kiminoto as a whole. So, <laughs> And why the merger uh, to Kiminoto? Um, at the time, our uh, community car share co-op, we were um, not financially doing that great. So Communoto mm -hmm. thankfully was able to uh, come in and purchase the assets of our of our co-op and we became part of the organization. And um, I'm very pleased to report we're, we're doing very well um, under the umbrella of Communoto. So that's, uh, that's a good news story there. <laughs> we're hearing, uh, and again, these have been around for years, uh, nothing mm -hmm. new here. However, you know, in and out of the news periodically, how is this industry? Is this something that's growing? Uh, clearly it is if you're joining these organizations and, and to make it bigger, obviously. Um, but is this a growing industry? Where, where have there been challenges here? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly. Um, and even since the pandemic, we've seen so much growth in usage. Um, mm. I think, you know, people and now with gas prices on, on top of it, there's just been such a I don't know if it's a shift in because people are working more from home, our travel patterns have shifted. But um, there's just we've we're seeing more and more demand over the last couple of years than we've ever seen before. So our, our usage rates are, um, you know, uh, higher than we've ever seen. I've been doing this for, for 13 years. Like things are, are, you know, as high as we've ever seen them uh, locally for usage, which is, which is fantastic. So I think more and more people are uh, choosing to, you know, maybe get rid of a car or reduce the number of cars in their household, or they're just finding, Oh, if I'm working from home, maybe I'm not commuting. I don't need a car. So people are shifting mm. um, their patterns or maybe they're choosing cycling or transit more often. Um, because they just, you know, want to do that and, and they can uh, just, yeah, use car share so when you're, you're just definitely, when they need a car. Yeah. You're definitely seeing a shift um, after yeah, the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, Oh, yeah. that's, that's, yeah. and you know, there's so many inter industries that have changed. Here's just another example of that. So how mm -hmm. does this work? If you're a user, how does this work? Yeah, so basically, and I'll talk about our new Flex service, of course, since uh, we, we just launched the 25 new cars yesterday in our, our free-floating, uh, which is effectively a one-way service. So it's the easiest thing ever. You just uh, you can download the Communoto app um, from your app store on your phone, and then uh, you also need to sign up. You can sign up online, and then you get your membership number, and then you just log into the app. And for Flex, you just um, the cars just show up on the app. Um, they're little orange pins if they're available, and you can... And uh, just block the car in the app. Uh, it gives you 30 minutes to get to the vehicle, uh, wherever it's parked, because they're parked on street uh, throughout wards one, two, and three. Uh, and then you unlock the car through the app with, uh, with your phone, of course. When you get there, it lets you in. You make your trip. You can go anywhere you want with the vehicles. Uh, and then once you're done, um, you just have to come back into uh, the flex zone, which is shown on the map in the app, um, and release the flex vehicle 
on street in a parking spot where our permits are valid, which is most kind of like, you know, a two hour parking or if there's unsigned streets, that kind of thing. That's where basically any non-revenue spot uh, on street is where the city has permitted us to um, have the car share vehicles parked. Uh, What about costs? Give us a rough idea. Yeah, so on our, um, basically, if you're just kind of starting out, you can look at the open plan. It's uh, free to join and there's no monthly fees on on that plan. So it's kind of our entry level if you really, if you just want to try it out. Um, So for flex, 41 cents a minute. And then um, if you do kind of enough minutes, then it that caps out at $10 an hour. And then if you're going for multiple hours, that caps out then at $50 a day. Um, You get 75 kilometers included per trip. And then if you do more than that, it's 21 cents a kilometer after that. And then, so that's on one rate plan. We actually have four other rate plans as well. Um, So, and um, depending on if you're going to be a frequent user or a less frequent user, some of the the other plans, um, they give you better rates on on your flex and also on if you're doing a a station-based or a round-trip vehicle, which is a service that we've we've been doing here for years and years, then um, you can get better rates. So, um, Definitely, you can check out all of the rate plans on our on our website, which is uh, Ontario.communoto.com. So, and what about insurance? So, insurance. So, uh, yeah, you're insured as a driver when you're using our vehicles. We we do provide that, and um, there is we do kind of offer or basically a damage protection plan. So, everyone who joins, you kind of select which level of damage protection you want. So, basically, if you're in a collision, that sets a cap for what your um, what you would pay us um, for the damage. For example, you, there's an option that's $1 trip. And then if you um, were in a collision, we'd only charge you $600 um, for that. And there's options to reduce that even right. more from $600 that uh, have a monthly fee. So that's how uh, we deal with insurance. And website to find out more about all of this. Yeah, so Ontario.communoto.com, and that's C-O-M-M-U-N-A-U-T-O is Communoto. I know it's a bit of a, a, a mouthful sometimes, um, being that it's a, originally a French a French name, of course, since uh, Communoto started in, uh, in Quebec. So, Communoto branch manager Janet McLeod with us for Southwest Ontario and a fascinating new car sharing service that has arrived in Hamilton. Uh, but you know, old, uh, pe- I won't say old people, but people with lots of experience in this, uh, in-, in this space that have been doing it right here in the hammer. Janet, thanks so much for your time. Good luck with this moving forward. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, here we are. Uh, I don't know, two and a half years since this, uh, global pandemic all started. We are where we are now, uh, thanks to science and technology and fast work of, of people working together, uh, breaking down silos and coming up with vaccines, sharing information. And, um, you know, when this all started, I don't think we had any idea how much this would change the world coming out uh, the other end of it or certainly where we are now. And uh, although there's been uh, lots of negatives to all of this, there have been some positives. And that is that it has forced research in areas, continued research in areas where perhaps we weren't really focused on uh, pre 
pandemic. And and now there's just a whole um, entire industry, it seems, in various industries. We're just talking about car sharing and how that's taken off uh, in a post-pandemic world. So um, you add that with technology, uh, the sky's the limit. And McMaster has proven that again as McMaster researchers uh, behind a new form of rapid, accurate, portable diagnostic tests are moving their war- work towards the marketplace. Uh, this uh, test uses a small sample of saliva, which is then uh, added, a, a chemical a, a reagent is added to it, inserted into a small reader, and then attached to your smartphone, providing accurate results within minutes. Uh, you can see how this could help in, in the amount of patient visits and and the spreading of information a lot more quickly uh, than having to wait for testing and such. So pretty fascinating uh, area that has come out of this global pandemic. Let's bring in Layla Solomani, McMaster engineer who helped develop the test system and is with us now. Layla, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Happy to be here. So is this new ideas, new technology that developed as a result of this pandemic or other technology that you've seen that, wow, we can apply this to a global pandemic? Yeah, it's more of the second one. So we've been working on this test for for these types of tests for more than 10 years at McMaster and my colleagues even even longer, right, more than 20 years. Um, So we were actually working on animal tests uh, to detect coronaviruses in animal tests before the pandemic. So when the pandemic came, it was kind of like a catalyst. We had this this proof of concept, but now we, we, we had the opportunity to work with infectious disease clinicians at McMaster, other engineers, other chemists, to, to really move this faster and, and apply this to a detection of COVID-19, which, which we did. We've heard from many, whether it's academic or those in industries uh, and such, that, you know, we found ourselves in a situation and talking to people that we weren't normally talking to uh, for various reasons, and then the collaboration started. Uh, that's really been a key to all of this in moving forward, isn't it? It's, it's all of a sudden breaking down these silos and, and, and using uh, knowledge and technology by simply sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, when the pandemic first started, a lot of us, you know, we we put aside our usual day to day activities and we all work together towards a common goal. So everybody just, you know, was extremely collaborative and still is. Uh, but but the common goal was key here. And, and it just helped us uh, reach out to people that normally it would, you know, it would take months to, to, to even get a first appointment with and, and rapidly um, put together a team collect um, patient samples and, and move very quickly, which, which has been great uh, amongst all the negative things that's happened throughout the, the pandemic. And kudos to all who, you know, could think outside the box and actually look at the long game here. That's absolutely uh, reassuring to hear as, uh, as average citizens and such. So who would use this? Who is this designed for? Yeah, so um, I mean, we're we're thinking of it as as coming in at different phases. So so at first, um, this could be applied to long term homes and schools uh, and and workplaces, and then later it can be used at home because it's it's more like a glucose monitor where you have a reader and a test strip or a, or a test cartridge. And initially, although this will be applied to COVID nineteen. 
In the future, we envision it to be applied to different diseases and different symptoms. So it could be a respiratory um, a cartridge that can be applied uh, applied to this. So, so people would, would have this reader at home and then can go to pharmacy and buy different cartridges for, for different symptoms. That is incredible when you think about it. And as you, as I was reading about this, that's one thing I did think of is people who have, you know, have to take the, you know, and get a, a reading on their blood sugar and such. Is there much, is there much common denominator there? Yes. So there is, I mean, the, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the foundation that we're building this technology is, is developed through, through, um, through all the work uh, that that was um, that led to the development of the glucose monitor. I mean, the reader is is very similar, and the idea of you know printing these reagents on these cartridges, and you know taking a small volume sample, doing at home testing, a lot of it is inspired by by the glucose monitor, and and we we look at that as a success story in our field, and we try to develop technologies that are similar but can do a lot more. Man, this saves a lot of steps, doesn't it? It saves a lot of stages in this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now, when when you go to to see a physician, a lot of times you're, uh, you know, you're 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 sent to to a laboratory where a sample is collected. A lot of times, the testing doesn't even happen at that collection facility. It's sent out to a more centralized facility. And then all of these things add to what we call the sample to result time. But imagine you have the opportunity to see your result, to get your results while you're still waiting at the physician's office. Uh, or, you know, for, for certain other things, you can have that at home while at the comfort of your own home. And also, I mean, think about all the, the regions uh, globally, but also in Canada that, are, that might be remote or under-resourced and do not have access to that, um, that, um, that core laboratory or, or the, the centralized laboratory. And this can open a lot of doors in those areas as well. Uh, so what's next for this for, for you and for Mac and the team and such? I understand there's now commercial uh, aspects to this. Uh, what's the next sta- a stage or step for you? Yeah, so um, so we have uh, started collaboration and licensing agreements with an, with an Ontario company uh, to commercialize this test. And we're collaborating with them through funding from them, but also support from from government um, in order to solve challenges that are related to um, to redesign and scale up and regulatory approval of, of the test. So once those are done, then uh, then upon approval from from the the regulators then the the tests can can come to the market uh this is fascinating but in the end i guess not surprising when you think of where we are and exactly what you talked about working together and then of course uh the heritage of mac this is incredible uh basically now testing through your smartphone yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what we want. We want to offer, be able to offer different what we call test menus that, that you can you can buy and then select on your on your smartphone and and kind of bring per, make personalized healthcare a reality. Uh, one of the positives to come out of a global pandemic. Leila Soleimani with us, McMaster engineer who helped develop this test system, who uh, seems now is on its uh, seems now is on its way. Leila, thanks so much for the time. Very exciting. Good luck to all of you for this. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This announcement is not about shortening wait times that are currently being experienced
at some of Canada's airports. As you know, these wait times are mainly caused by staffing shortages. The adjustments we're making today are based on science, and they will not have an impact immediately on these airport delays. We remain committed to reducing the wait times at Canada's airport. We have already taken a number of steps to improve this situation. That is the uh, Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, LeBlanc, talking about why now, when earlier on in the week, uh, there was really no intention of doing this. Uh, but it's uh, it's not about the delays in the lineups. It's, it's about the science. But, you know, I'm sure... Uh, many who are out there um, are in agreement in the sense that moving forward is the way to do it. But is this the way to move forward? Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus in the School of Population, Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I certainly am, Scott. Thank you. All right, your thoughts on what we're hearing today and uh, obviously the dropping, uh, I guess, as of June 20th of certain protocol at the airport. Yeah, I think looking at it realistically, uh, it was uh, spot on when it was brought in, uh, back when two uh, vaccination shots were the standard, and that's what we were trying to attain. But since then, things have changed. I mean, the latest variant, the Omicron, uh, doesn't really respond very much to the two doses. And unfortunately, uh, that's been the official definition of, quote, fully vaccinated, unquote. So if that's the definition, two doses are really pretty old fashioned, not really effective these days. So uh, on that note, we'll start there. Should this be changed? They're talking about by the fall, you're going to need a booster, uh, whether that will become the definition of fully vaccinated. We'll see where this all goes. But do you see that happening, that by fall, it's like, okay, roll up the sleeves, we're going at it again? Well, I don't think we, we've roll down the sleeves. I think the big message, as you and I have spoken in the, in the recent past, is to keep, keep going. the vaccination. If you're not yeah. up there with the three doses, get the third one. If you're eligible for the fourth one, don't hesitate, get it, because it'll be an extra bit as well. But the re- third one is the real, uh, the finishing of the of the three-dose uh, vaccine uh, treatment for this particular, not treatment, but uh, prophylaxis for this disease. Yeah, what's going to happen in the future? Oh, there, there lies all kinds of problems, as you well know. If you try and predict anything with this virus, you never quite know. But let's assume everything's on an even key. Let's assume there are no really horrible more uh, uh, variants appear out of nowhere with yet more sinister uh, side effects. Let's assume we still stick with the same kind of thing we've got at the moment. I think we're going to see a slight rise in the next uh, two or three weeks because of the lessening of, uh, of, of precautions. I was at a big graduation yesterday for my daughter who was graduating from university. And about mm. half the people wore masks and half didn't, purely on a voluntary basis. And that's good. That's good. Large crowds inside together for extended periods of time, people talking and shouting. Yes, that's good idea to wear a mask in that. Whether any, any law says you should or mandate says you should, doesn't matter. Good idea. Outside, don't doesn't matter about the mask so much at all. So I think we're going to see a slight increase as the, as the people take off their masks. And then in the fall, we'll probably be seeing an increase as well, because we do anyway for all those respiratory diseases, mm. you know, respiratory syncytial virus, colds, influenzas, all of those things. And we'll probably see an increase in this one as well in the fall. But let's hope it's a speed bump that we can deal with and it's not very serious and doesn't put a pressure on the medical services. 
Uh, variants were always sort of the, the wild card here. You never knew what you were going to deal with uh, months down the road and such. Uh, it was just a year ago um, we were dealing with the Delta var- uh, variant, which, of course, much more deadly. The Omicron variant, not as deadly, but spreads much, much quicker than the Delta variant, which has actually pushed the Delta variant out and left Omicron as the dominant variant. If there is another variant, doctor, are we to assume that it will uh, spread as much as, if not more, than Omicron and will be, again, less deadly? What will make this or trigger this into a more deadly uh, variant? Okay, variants appearing sort of uh, by the thousands every minute. Uh, we don't we don't even hear of the vast majority because they mean the virus can't replicate. It can't go anywhere. We don't even hear it. Uh, t- to be a new variant, it would simply need to spread much more rapidly. Nothing to do with the severity of the disease. Mm-hmm. Just spread much more rapidly. And if it can evade some of those antibodies that we've built up through vaccines and having infections, that'll be another bad uh, news to it as well. So the next one, it would have to spread at least as, e- at least as fast as this one. And it would probably, uh, if you want to put cream on the top, uh, devil's cream on the top, if you like, uh, that it would be uh, able to evade, or the proper word is escape, the uh, antibodies and the immunity that's been built up. Let's hope we don't get it, but it's quite possible. As long as there are vast numbers of population in the world who, who have barely started the vaccination process, there's some about 14 or 15 percent have got any kind of vaccination. Well, the vaccine's going through those lots. And of course, all those, all those no COVID policies that we saw previously, uh, different policies, but they were aiming for the same thing. China did an excellent job in the beginning. They clamped down to zero after only 30,000 cases. And now they're beginning to realize that if if that's your policy, you've got to open the door sooner or later. And if you do and the population are not vaccinated, then you can expect the kind of surges we've seen in Shanghai and to some Mm. degree in Beijing and also Taiwan, which is the poster child. It's now seeing a huge surge because they weren't up to date with the vaccination. They, They were just trying to keep it out. So vaccination, more important than uh, lockdowns. Uh, one more. We only got 30 seconds left. Truckers and federal employees, uh, their mandates now drop. We remember the convoy and all the commotion when 90 percent of them were vaccinated and 10 percent weren't. Uh, we, I guess this just goes in step with everything else. Yeah, I, yeah, we've got about fifty-six percent of people with the uh, with the three with the, uh, the 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 fully fully boosted and everything else, and that's nowhere near enough. Yeah. Uh, we we need uh, a hell of a lot more than that. It's like hitting your head against a brick wall. I guess some people you're never going to get through to, but if enough of the population is fairly well protected, and I think if you haven't been fully protected, let's get you fully protected, then these odd few people who decide to stick their heels in and say no, not for me, then they're just going to have to live with the consequences. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. As always, Tim, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Bye. I don't need to tell you how our relations are going with Russia, uh, considering we're at day, what, just over 116 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, sanctions and all the rest. Um, You know the story. Uh, So uh, amongst uh, that situation and, and where we are in the world and what is going on, Uh, At the Russian embassy in Ottawa, uh, they had a Russia day and a Canadian official, uh, Canadian official was in attendance. 
Uh, the Office of the Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Melanie Jolie, knew that a senior department official would be attending the party at the Russian embassy in Ottawa last Friday uh, and was pressed to apologize by the Prime Minister's office. Uh, two senior government uh, sources say that her office was informed that the, uh, before the party that the Global Affairs Deputy Chief of Protocol would be attending the event to celebrate Russia Day, but a spokesperson for the minister said that Ms. Jolie herself did not know and only learned that uh, the person was attending through the Globe and Mail's story that came out. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and with us now. Arl, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Thank you. How significant is this? Is it significant at all? Is it better to keep your enemies close? Well, what seems to be a relatively minor diplomatic infraction to some, in fact, illuminates a much deeper and serious systemic problem in Canadian diplomacy and in foreign policy formulation. Explain. Uh, for a long time now, I think Canadian uh, uh, foreign policy has suffered from what I would call the culture of diplomatism. And that is this uh, notion that you talk no matter what, that you have communications regardless of the circumstances. And this is predicated on the assumption that somehow diplomacy is an end, not a means to an end. And Mm. that is a huge mistake because diplomacy is only a tool. It carries symbolism. It has to be part of a larger strategy you have to signal very carefully what you're doing. By attending, by speaking, you are conveying a message. Hmm. It is not free. It is not without risk. And this shows a fundamental conceptual problem as well as real carelessness. So uh, let me really simplify this, and you can tell me if I bump off base, Laurel. Uh, Oral is it's it's going to the party, and you're not you don't like the host, but you're not going to tell them why. Well, uh, sometimes you just don't go to the party because yeah. uh, you sent a message uh, uh, by not going that you have a strategy, a strategy of exclusion, and that is what we are doing. We are trying to supposedly isolate Russia. Russia has not only attacked Ukraine, we need to understand that this has been an attack on the international system. The invasion of Ukraine has more or less destroyed the United Nations. The UN has no credibility that has failed in its central mission. International law has been grievously wounded. Nuclear proliferation has been encouraged. Um, The Russians are making demands on NATO. Vladimir Putin, in his latest uh, musings, uh, when he met with a group of uh, Russians, explained that he would like to play the role of Peter the Great, of uh, empire building, uh, of taking territory, which he says is rightfully Russia, and that includes uh, uh, parts of the Baltic states. So we are in a pretty dangerous situation, and consequently, we need to stick to a strategy. And in this particular case, the individual who went to the Russian embassy was, uh, I understand, Yasmin Heinbecker. She's not a junior official. She is the deputy protocol chief. 
if she was sent, I don't understand why she did not refuse to go because she should have been aware of the problem. And those who sent her definitely should not have even contemplated doing that. It sends a mixed signal. It uh, conveys to Russia the hope that if they keep up with the pressure long enough, the West, as it had following the invasion by Russia of Georgia in 2008 and of Ukraine in 2014, the West would eventually cave. The West would not have the persistence. The West would not be able to retain its unity. So at every single level, this sends the wrong message. And then to say, well, we apologize and we don't intend to do this in the future, misses the point. Hmm. That we should really re-examine, there should be a commission set up, why did this happen? Why are we pursuing this kind of culture of diplomatism, uh, which is self-defeating, which really misunderstands that diplomacy, as I noted, is a tool, it is a means, it is not an end. And there's a kind of perverse irony here that this uh, holiday that was being celebrated at the Russian embassy commemorated Russia's constitutional reform. Well, Russia has no hmm. meaningful constitution. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Arl. Um, Minister Jolie apparently did not know, but her office did know. Um, and I remember in the past uh, her talking about the two Michaels and why we hadn't heard from them. They were on parole, talking about our military, saying they were conveners, not a power. Is she qualified for this job? She has done certain good things. She has uh, been vocal in supporting Ukraine. She has indicated that she understands how this invasion is an assault on uh, international law, international institutions. Um, but she needs to translate ideas into policy. And that is not only up to her, that is up to the entire government. So we may as well ask the question, is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau qualified? Mm -hmm. Are the other ministers, the Minister of Defense qualified? Because we need to do much more on the ground. First of all, we are not helping Ukraine anywhere close to what we have uh, the capacity to do or what Ukraine is asking. The Ukrainians have just reached a statement saying that they are getting only about 10% of the promised weapons. And we are at a new inflection point where in the Donbass, the Russians are making advances. They are using a huge number of forces. They are employing unrestricted brutality. They are wreaking havoc. They are destroying entire cities, but they are gaining ground. So Ukrainians need help. And ironically, while other countries are building up their armed forces because they have to respond to Russia, we are not doing that in Canada in any sufficient fashion. We're not even remotely approaching the 2% goal hmm. of GDP expenditures. And Russia has massively militarized the Arctic. So in some ways, we could help Ukraine by helping ourselves. We could strengthen our sovereign position in the Arctic and make sure that Russia cannot just divert forces from the Arctic to the Ukrainian front. Arl Brown with us, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Always fascinating, Arl. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We saw and heard the uh, victim impact statements and the sentencing uh, for the mass murder involved in the Toronto van attack. Sentenced to life in prison, uh, parole in 25, or eligible for parole in uh, 25 years. Uh, chances are that's not going to happen, especially after the impact statements we heard. Um, but uh, I guess the issue here, when you have concurrent sentences, the uh, uh, the the terms, the, the charges are all, sentences are all served at once, consecutively, it's one after another after another. Uh, you're going to spend life in prison either way. The difference is uh, coming up for parole. And even if you're somebody like a Paul Bernardo, who's been considered a dangerous offender, and all of this was done uh, as he was being uh, uh, sentenced and such to keep him in there, the family still has to go through this every so many years if he decides he wants to apply for parole. I guess they don't have to, but they feel they do. Um, so just recently, the Supreme Court ruled against consecutive sentencing. To talk more about this, what it means, the reason uh, for all of this, is Jeff Manishin's with us, cre- uh, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney, and with us now. Jeff, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Yes, doing fine, Scott. You? Um, good. Thanks so much. So uh, tell us about the Supreme Court decision that ended the consecutive sentencing. Okay. Um, if we go back a little bit in history, the law had been prior to the Harper government's amendment that an individual convicted of the offense of first-degree murder, the sentence was automatic, a life imprisonment, no parole for eligibility for a minimum of 25 years. And if it was more than one victim or if it was more than one act, still the same, there was no capacity for consecutive periods of parole and eligibility. Harper government, uh, they debated it, and it was discussed at Parliament, and they decided, no, we want to change that, and we want to give the judge the discretion to impose consecutive 25-year periods of parole and eligibility for multiple convictions of first-degree murder. And that was done in a number of instances. The judge didn't have to do it, but essentially, Scott, it was either they're consecutive or they're not. And so uh, you had cases where people got longer periods of parole and eligibility than they had in the past. And in a case called Bissonnette out of Quebec, the trial judge received a submission that that constituted cruel and unusual punishment, that it was really so excessive that it would violate Section 12 of the Charter. And he uh, agreed with that. And uh, the uh, consideration the way in which he approached was to say, well, but I'm going to read down the effect of the legislation. So I'm going to treat it that I can decide how much parole and eligibility I can give, not 25 times 1 times 2 times 3. And he imposed a 40-year period. The Court of Appeals said, no, that's wrong. You don't have the, in this case, you shouldn't be doing that. And we do agree that the section's unconstitutional. Supreme Court of Canada considered it. And they upheld the Court of Appeal unanimously. So um, not giving a criminal the chance of parole after 25 years is unconstitutional. That's what this comes down to. Uh, Does it mean anything more as far as the sentence goes uh, to the offender? Because it appears the only the the outcome here, other than, of course, (laughs) the the, uh, person uh, convicted has their charter rights violated. But the, the families feel the need to go back 
and revisit this whenever the person applies, therefore reopening wounds. Is there any more? Is it that simple? Is there any more to this than that? Um, is this about the uh, uh, the rights of the person charged and not being able for parole uh, for 25 years versus the family having to come out and relive this for the next however many years? It's not really a one versus the other, Scott. They don't get the court doesn't really get into the issue of the family's input at the parole yeah. level. The way in which they approach it is this: they basically say that if you have a situation, and this is really at the core of the decision, if you have a punishment which they say is by its very nature intrinsically incompatible with human dignity, then it's unconstitutional. And they basically say that to get into multiple, to take three, seven, no parole eligibility for 75 years. What mm. they say is that, that a sentence like that is degrading and that it presupposes at the time of its imposition that the offender is beyond redemption and lacks the moral autonomy right. needed for rehabilitation. Essentially saying right. that as of the day of sentencing, forget it. This guy can never be rehabilitated. This guy has no reasonable possibility of parole right from the outset. And they say that's, and the 75-year sentence, that's never even going to be carried out. He's never going to live that long. So they essentially say that's that's not the kind of sentence that we say is consistent with our charter values. We say there's an element of human dignity that every individual is capable of repenting. And we have to at least allow for that possibility. Maybe the person never hits it, but that, that you at least allow for the possibility, take out that possibility, they say that's inconsistent. They say it's like uh, an that, inmate on death row. Yeah. That, and that makes perfect sense. I completely understand that. Um, some will say, well, that doesn't account for the victim's families. And as you said, that's not the objective here. Is there anything we can do to keep that in place because that's constitutional and then somehow make it easier for the families that don't have to go through this? Because, again, I've had lawyers come on and say, well, they don't have to go and they really shouldn't go because all of this has been done to keep the guy in. But as a family who's lost uh, you know, a loved one, you know, saying that and doing it are two different things. So is there anything more uh, from a legal standpoint we can do to make it better for the victims, uh, for the families uh, of the victims, and 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 so they don't have to keep reliving this over and over again. Well, it's interesting to ask that, Scott, because of course there was a time years ago where victims did not have the opportunity to make submissions or appear, at least to appear at a parole hearing. Because remember, the parole hmm. issues really focus on what kind of risk the individual presents if released. Parole is not about punishment. Punishment has already been imposed at the time of sentencing. And the criminal code provides for victim impact evidence on sentencing. So the question of the evaluation of risk at the parole level, one might say that a victim would feel his or her loss every bit as deeply years later as they did at the time of sentencing. And there may be instances in which they may may well still have a measure of fear. There are going to be some cases, but I'm sure there are others in which it's more a matter of saying, Okay, this is so upsetting for me that I would be upset further if the individual got out. But our laws have been uh, structured in a way that the victims do have the opportunity to be heard at a parole hearing. Scott, is it possible to amend the Parole Act to potentially delay the frequency with which somebody could apply for parole on a first-degree murder if it's multiple offenses? That's a scenario that could potentially unfold. I mean, there's nothing to prevent Parliament from saying, well, we're going to change this law And instead of being an automatic 25-year and 25-year and 25-year period, 
to give a trial judge the discretion, if it's multiple first degree murders, to uh, to impose a longer period of parole eligibility than 25. The very thing that that trial judge wanted to do. The Supreme Court said, no, that's not the right remedy because it was very clear Parliament didn't want that kind of thing. They considered it, mm. they wanted 25. Could the new part, could the current Parliament say, well, we're going to change it? We're going to give the trial judge a discretion to impose a longer period of parole eligibility than 25. That's certainly an option. So there are a couple of remedies available. It's really got to be stressful and difficult every time that the individual is up for parole. Yeah, but the question of what you do with the sentencing regime isn't based on the impact at the parole level. You see what I'm trying to express is they're really yeah, different yeah. sets of considerations, and each of them has a validity but you have to consider what the legislative scheme for each one is meant to accomplish. Jeff Madison with us, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney, talking about the Toronto van attacker being handed uh, concurrent sentences as opposed to consecutive sentences in regard to parole. Jeff, thank you for explaining that. As always, uh, be well and take care. Okay, you're most welcome, Scott. Always a pleasure. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CHML. Lots going on uh, today as far as dropping mandates and protocol. Uh, Obviously, the federal government uh, flip-flopping from where they were just even a couple of days ago, saying that uh, as of January 20th, some of the vaccine mandates for those traveling out of the country uh, and such will be lowered. And uh, so, so clearly we are moving on uh, from this pandemic or certainly learning to live with it. And as a result, the COVID alert app is coming to an end. Now, the Arrive Can app, that's all still saying masking and traveling. That's all still saying. Um, but in amongst all of these, uh, the mandates that have been dropping, vaccine mandates regarding travel, also the COVID alert app is coming to an end. Uh, successful or not? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Great to be here. So we've talked about this app a few times, and have we deemed it to be a success or not a success? Uh, I think it fell far short of where we wanted it to be. Not enough Canadians downloaded it, and then after it was downloaded, the the world changed around it. When you uh, received a positive test result, you were supposed to enter this one-time code into it. Uh, but that came from the PCR test, which, of course, over time, we essentially stopped using. We moved everything over to rapid antigen tests, those cheap mm. ones you can pick up at the pharmacy for free. Uh, and uh, and so essentially the, the, the process broke as soon as the protocol for testing evolved. And the app was never updated to reflect that. So it sat gathering dust on most Canadians' devices, mine included, um, but we really couldn't use it. So as a result, uh, it essentially languished and they attribute barely 400 cases of COVID um, to the app. Uh, This is over the course of almost two years, uh, over 6 million downloads. It really fell just absolutely short of where we expected it to be. And 20 million to pay for? 
Yeah, three and a half million to develop the app, and the rest of it was for marketing, communications, and advertising. So they really went uh, all out to to try to you know get Canadians to come on board and you know address a lot of the misgivings. Remember, originally there was a lot. There were many concerns over privacy that the government was standing over your shoulder and it was going to be hoovering all sorts of information. That, of course, was not the case. It was explicitly explicitly designed not to be an invasive app. This is no Facebook app on your device where it's sucking up all of that data. It only used Bluetooth. It was only intended to do one thing, ident- identify when you came in contact, legitimate contact with someone else who had tested positive. But of course, the damage had already been done. Most Canadians are wary of government oversight, government overreach. And there were many millions of Canadians who essentially stayed away from the app, despite the $16.5 million in marketing and advertising. Uh, they wouldn't believe the government no matter how many ads they threw at them. So safe to delete this puppy now. Pretty much, uh, you know, like it's, it's 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 ironic. Everyone I know who who has it, uh, you know, they got COVID. I got COVID. My family got it. We all had the app, and it certainly didn't. I've got my us. hand up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and, and so, we thought we were doing the right thing, but obviously, it it clearly wasn't enough. And we you know we felt that it would be far more. Obviously, it would have been more effective if more people had downloaded it and used it. Used it, but even then, uh, I think that the numbers were even more limited than we thought they would be. So, what did we learn from this experiment? We learned that uh, governments aren't very good at uh, developing and deploying apps because, as we saw, there was no national real strategy. You had diff- some provinces struck out on their own, came up with their own apps that didn't speak to apps in other provinces. So if you moved from one province to another, that was problematic. Um, the, the, you know, the overall, the messaging was, was focused right at the beginning, downloaded as soon as it was launched. But once it was launched, in the, in the, you know, about four or five months later, you heard nothing about it. There wasn't a sustained campaign to keep it front and center. So the longer it sat on your phone, the, the deeper it kind of fell into that well of apps that we never use, uh, you know, on you know, three uh, or four screens deep. Uh, so, uh, unlike uh, unlike this app, the ArriveCan app, which is being used for travel and is is still a requirement, it seems to work a little stronger, a little better. Very much so, because ArriveCan, first of all, it's it's a much more ambitious app. It it requires you to do a lot more, and it is mandatory. The COVID alert was well, if you want to help the cause, download it and and yeah. be part of the community response to the pandemic. Whereas with COVID, with, whereas uh, with ArriveCan, it was if you want to get back into the country, you better download this thing. You better pre-populate it long before you get anywhere near the border. And you're going to have to have all your ducks in a row by the time you show up at the customs office. And that really was the, that was the key difference. One was a requirement. One was a nice to have. And as, as we, as we saw, uh, Canadians won't do something unless they're compelled to do so. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, the days of the COVID alert app. Uh, over. Feel free to download it and free up some space now for something else. Uh, Carmi, as always, thanks so much. Me, nice game can go in there instead. Uh, Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, rising interest rates, uh, buying a new home or getting started at buying a home in this country as uh, continues to be uh, what some are saying an impossible feat. We're hearing of interest rates going up, although uh, that has curbed a bit of the price. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, if you can't afford the house, it doesn't matter what price it is. 
as the housing price uh, crisis continues, it was fascinating during the last uh, last provincial election. We had all three. Uh, four political parties, uh, the Greens, the NDP, and the Liberals all joining the Conservatives and pledging to build more homes. Uh, what does this mean moving forward? How do we hear, how do we, uh, handle surveys that are saying, for example, one in four, uh, are worried that they're going to have to give up their home if housing rates, uh, interest rates go up? And also, what about the 20% who are buying as an investment because they're short supply and high demand? Uh, let's bring in Marteza Hader, Professor, Data Science and Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and is with us now. Marteza, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, your thoughts on uh, where we are. And, uh, um, you know, we've got uh, surveys that are saying one in four uh, may have to give up their home because of rising interest rates. Yet we're hearing another survey saying it could be as high as 20% or just over 20%, depending on your area, that uh, of homes are being bought by those uh, average people who are looking for a, a good investment because it's low supply and high demand. If we see those one in four that may lose the home due to rising interest rates, are those people who are actually living in these as homes, or would this refer more to the investors, or can we even split those hairs? Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be um, an outcome where one in four homeowners will be uh, not be able to afford their homes because of rising interest rates. Um, my understanding is that if uh, this uh, situation of affordability is a real concern, um, then the homeowners have the opportunity to convert it to fixed rate mortgage um, before mm-hmm. it becomes too expensive on a monthly basis. Uh, but if they choose to wait uh, until such time that their mortgage payments become unaffordable, um, then there's something else wrong with these people who are going to wait that long. And I don't think anyone would do that. Um, so I don't know where this number comes from uh, and what kind of uh, consumers they are talking to who would not opt out of such unaffordability challenges, given that there is an alternative available to them. That is switching from a variable rate mortgage to fixed rate mortgage. Having said that, I can imagine a situation that in the long run, when people are renegotiating their mortgages, that the higher interest rates could mean that a renegotiated mortgage um, uh, is uh, is more expensive. But that would happen not today, not tomorrow, not maybe next year, but in a few years' time, maybe 2025. If that were to happen, they would have uh, realized significant gains in property valuation. Um, mm. And even if they have to sell the house, they'll be walking away with a lot of equity in it. wouldn't be that worse off. So I'm not alarmed um, if I were to imagine the possible um, iterations of a future where interest rates would continue to rise. However, I'm also not convinced that... Uh, Five years down the road, we will still be seeing higher interest rates when the uh, people who have bought homes now will be uh, renegotiating their mortgages. So that, again, you know, it's it's very hard for me to imagine uh, that this inflationary cycle that is not necessarily tied to too much of money in the markets, but mostly because of the scarcity and disruptions to supply chains. And then some of it related to people have been sitting on savings. Uh, for long. Um, But then I don't expect this cycle to last for until 2025 that the central banks across the world would be raising uh, interest rates systematically and and consistently. 
um, I think that rates will come down. Uh, things will change unexpectedly, as they always do. So um, if if it's up to me, uh, no, I'm not alarmed. I don't buy that number, and um, I don't think this is going to be a realistic outcome in the future. Interesting. Uh, talking to a financial planner earlier, and they pointed out that the interest rates are still on par with where they were pre-pandemic. They were actually on their way up when the pandemic hit, and then obviously had to go south to keep people uh, uh, liquid and such. And and the rates that are coming up now are still pretty much pre-pandemic level. That is correct. We effectively had negative interest rates during mm-hmm. the pandemic. Um, and um, so we, from a historic point of view, we are just catching up on what we were doing uh, right before the the uh, the pandemic. Also, remember the stress test was there, yeah. always there, uh, to see that if you have a two percent cushion, um, that if the interest rates were to increase by two percent, that you still have the means to support your mortgage. And and I don't think we have crossed that threshold yet. And even if we do in the future, it wouldn't be. Um, unlikely that we're going to, you know, be raising interest rates by five percent percentage points. Um, so, so I think uh, uh, things will be a little tough as far as mortgages are concerned. But if you have a variable mortgage rate, and if it concerns you that the rising interest rates hmm. could mean that your mortgage payments would be beyond your means, then switch to a fixed mortgage rate today. Call your banker today. Um, don't take that chance if you still if you think you are the one who's going to be vulnerable rather than waiting till 2024 when your mortgage payments become really really high if that's going uh, to be the case many leaders many politicians are saying right now there's nothing we can do about this uh, lots are saying there is no short term solution is that admitting that we should have been building years ago especially when we see four major political parties greens ndp libs and conservatives all now pledging to build houses during the last provincial election yes i mean that is an obvious uh, solution to this challenge um that we would have opted for um, we should have opted for, but we didn't. Mind yeah. you, many people think that it's a re- new problem. It's not. We have not been building enough homes, or at least building homes at the rate we were building in the early 1970s. So we have a shortfall that of housing that we have accumulated over a five-decade period. It's not you know five years or ten years. Over the past 50 years, yeah. we were building on a per capita basis more home more homes in 1970s, 71, 72, 73, than we have been building in the last five decades. And therefore, it has caught up to us. That's it. It has simply caught up to us. And now every other solution seems like a Band-Aid solution other than building more housing. And again, why is building, why was building a bad word, Merteza? Oh, because, you know, I, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on builders in, in early 2000s. And at that time, it was only myself and one other person, uh, Mike Buzelli, who's a professor at the Western University, who were were working with builders. The entire academic uh, profession, academia, was against the word builders. Nobody wanted to study them. Nobody Mm -hmm. wanted to sponsor any research. I mean, you ask the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, the primary um, research-granting institution for social sciences, and say, how much research over the past three decades, have you in, in, invested in uh, uh, home builders and, and in the, on the supply side of housing? And how much have you funded in the demand side of housing? And I'm, I'm, I don't have an explicit answer, but based on my experience with this system over the last three decades, I can safely say 
that an overwhelming majority of the focus has been on the demand side. Now, neither is the research being mm. conducted, nor is being sponsored. And we have a very pejorative view in academia of the building industry, and that has caught up with us. I mean, the people, the very industry that provides the, the, the very homes that serve as our shelters, we hold a pejorative view of it. The planning community holds a pejorative view of it. And that has just left us with a situation that we have un controllable prices because the demand continues to increase and the supply is stuck. We create barriers um, in, in constructing towards constructing mm. more homes. It could be barriers because of nimbyism, barriers because of planning regulations, barriers because of supply shortages or labor shortages. It all has just added up. Marteza Hader, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you kindly. Take care. Calling us. Well, I don't know if he's there now, but originally, at one time, uh, from uh, according to Stats Canada, uh, Canada's happiest province, Newfoundland. Uh, Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, with him, uh, with us now. Tim, great to have you here. Are you in the happiest province, or are you not <laughs> right now? Oh, I'm in Ottawa, which is not the happiest place on earth, Scott. But you know, whatever. It's still a nice place, but it's no rock. That's for sure. And, you know, there's a whole ton of uh, people from Ontario that are moving out east, whether it's all the way to the rock or not. Have you noticed that? Are you noticing that there's some, you know, uh, something's moving in? I'm not sure if I'm happy about. Well, they've been Atlantic Canada has been out aggressively soliciting and seducing people to come out there because, as you say, we've got this great quality of life out there. There's space and with the world of work changing because of the what happened over the pandemic or we're still in the pandemic. Yeah, we're we're on the hunt, Scott. You come out, bring Will 1, Will 2, Will 3, Will 4, bring the whole army of Wills and we'll set you up. Uh, seriously, I, I bet you I can name a half a dozen people I know that have uh, flown the coop, uh, flown the coop here and gone out there. But I digress. All right, uh, travel mandates being dropped left, right, and center now. Uh, obviously, uh, mandates being dropped for domestic and outbound international travel as of uh, June twentieth. This after days of no, no, we're we're good here. Um, and they're also saying this has nothing to do with the delays at the airports. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, there's probably a bit of truth and a bit of stretching of the truth in there um the the timing is interesting right if i have heard and you probably talked to them today a number of different epidemiologists said this perhaps could have been done earlier because rates of spread are down um the government said they're not i think the quote from the minister was well we didn't wake up today and decide to do it well certainly the pressure over the last two weeks has increased they're saying uh that they're the boost campaign the initial booster or sorry the initial campaign to get shots which saw i think nearly 90 percent of canadians get two shots uh work very well they're worried about boosters so they have a bit of a science argument but i can tell you having been through pearson last week uh, having heard the stories and lived part of it, that it, it is a major issue because that has a major impact on the economy. Uh, not Perhaps not getting as much news is the trucker mandates, vaccine mandates, have also been dropped. So that means no more uh, freedom convoys, or does it? Uh, well... <laughs> Freedom can come in many forms, not just the needle, Scott. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. A federal employees also no longer required to yeah. get uh, to get vaccinated, which um, which will be viewed as a good thing, as I say here in Ottawa. The interesting thing, though, some of the things they're keeping 
aren't going to address this airport situation. So this Arrive Canada app, um, been cited by many as slowing down the process. So if you leave Canada and you come back, you still have to fill out the Arrive Canada app. You still have to do all mm-hmm. of that. That's another time-consuming element, not just for passengers, uh, but for people in the airport, uh, in the various elements of the airline travel who have to, to deal with all of this. You'll still wear masks on planes, which is, uh, which is a good thing. Um, so, you know, some, 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 most certainly some positive movement here, and this will probably help with, with summer travel and family reunification because there's lots of stories, as you know, of people who couldn't fly because they weren't vaccinated and they weren't going to get vaccinated. Now they can fly. Uh, so, uh, so some, certainly some positive here. Absolutely. Uh, the situation regarding a Canadian official attending Russia Day celebrations at the Russian embassy. Uh, uh, the uh, Minister Jolie, apparently her office did know, but they didn't tell her about it. How big a deal is this or is it? Well, apparently there's not a booster for uh, poor thinking or stupidity when it comes to how this was all handled. Look. I think Minister Julie is going to face more scrutiny. It's totally believable. I will say this: don't don't assume that a minister does know everything and is told everything. But so, two people there made a may may have been more than two. The official who attended, and who and whomever Minister Jolie's office knew this and didn't tell the minister. Those are big mistakes. We shouldn't have Canadian officials at Russian events right now. It legitimizes Russia at a time when they should be delegitimized because of what's happening in the Ukraine. It's not a simple argument of, well, there should be open channels of diplomacy. Russia's not listening to anybody right now. Why are we giving them the satisfaction of sending our officials to Russia Day celebrations? Bad move. Um, questions about Melanie Jolie and her competence. What has happened here? Uh, during the two Michaels, she made a statement that they were on parole after being released. Also has made references to the military being conveners, not military power. Uh, is she over her head? I don't know if she's over her head, but the criticism is fair because there have been uh, some some significant mistakes. You will often hear that her 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 team isn't as strong as perhaps it should be in that portfolio or they don't have enough experienced foreign affairs official. And I don't want to be un, unfair to the staff. Ultimately, it's the minister and the prime minister's office who determine who's staffed there. The other dimension of this, Scott, is, and I don't, don't want to diminish uh, uh, her as an individual, but foreign affairs is really seemingly the key files run by the prime minister and the deputy prime minister. So maybe perhaps the mistakes that she's making aren't as significant or viewed in the same light because two other people uh, ahead of her in the cabinet pecking order are leading the charge. Uh, Are we learning anything? And I'm going all over the place here with you, Tim. Are we learning anything or... Are the feds learning anything from provincial politics? Interesting article this week of how the provincial liberals literally having a, a come-to-Jesus moment. They've lost the last two elections. They're not even official party status. Uh, they're being viewed as arrogant and out of touch uh, and, and really have to do some soul-searching to get back up on top for uh, the next provincial election. Uh, are federal liberals watching this? Same thing with Doug Ford and the federal conservatives. Are, are they watching their provincial counterparts? parts to see what works what doesn't work and and learning anything from them 
Well, I, 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 yes. I mean, that's pretty standard practice, whether they, they do take lessons away from Ontario or Alberta or elsewhere and, and import them. I mean, for example, switch it around. If you're the Conservatives and you're Pierre Polyev and, you know, you've been running on freedom, freedom, freedom. Well, a lot of the freedom challenge has now been taken away, as we talked about yeah. earlier. And, you know, you talked about crypto, the the backside, the arse has gone out of crypto. Um, so, you, you you know, you, if you look at Ford and your Pierre Polyev, you can make the argument that Ford built a tent, built a new tent, and it worked. There's more to it than that. You're Justin Trudeau and you look at Stephen Del Duca, you can see what happens when you try only to run on a brand as opposed to an identity that's contemporary and relevant and or people in Ontario feel like, such as union workers, that they've been taken uh for granted. That's a lesson you need to be mindful of. So lots of things all parties can take from 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 the Ontario election, most certainly. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, talking about all things politics as always. Tim, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Big news. Uh, former mayor of Hamilton, uh, former MP, former morning man at this radio station, Bob Bertina, has announced that he is running for the city of Hamilton mayor again. And Bob Bertina is with us now. Bob, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm great. Sitting on the porch, enjoying the evening. You know, Bob, so I'm sitting here thinking, and I've known you for an awful long time. You've had a very successful and distinguished radio career. You were the mayor, a federal politician, an MP. Why do you want to jump back into this? Well, I love the city. I mean, I made a huge commitment to stay in Hamilton, come back from Toronto and stay and do the morning show on CHML and then run for politics. And I think it's most people have expressed concerns over the way things have been going the last little while. I have a passion for it, and I'm in good health. So I thought I would throw my hat back into the ring again and let let the public decide whether I've had my day or whether I've still got something to offer. Many have said over the years, talking about Hamilton City Council, that it has stayed the same, although there has been some some changes of late, but for a period of time stayed the same, and there wasn't a lot enough or a lot of new blood uh, coming in. Uh, obviously, you've been mayor before, so why? W- what's the incentive for people to vote for you uh, when perhaps they're looking for change? What can you bring to this? Well, uh, if there's going to be a transition to uh, a new era, there has to be some experience. And my credentials are pretty good because, you know, I've, I've won elections as councillor, mayor, and, and MP. I have a lot of great uh, relationships that I've established. And people will say, well, you know, you had all these uh, troubles with the council. But none of those problems related to the business of the city. So uh, we did well. We, I'll stand my, on my record anytime, you know, I can bore you to death listing off things that I, I feel that uh, I helped achieve for the city. but uh, And then the other candidates, whoever they may be, can put their record up or, or their vision or whatever and let the voters decide because, you know, in, in the end, it's, it's their counsel and their decision. Now, should I run or shouldn't I run? Well, I feel like I should. Uh, I feel I've got something to offer. I think I know where some of the problems lie, and those are being exposed in a very obvious way through the Red Hill Inquiry. So let's see if the public will support me, and let's see if I can make the changes that 
will bring Hamilton into the 21st century. We can't keep going like we have for the last 20 years. If you are successful, Bob, and become the next mayor of the city of Hamilton, you've been very vocal about the LRT. Where does that leave the LRT? Well, the LRT is still in the hands of council. They will uh, have some decisions to make as we go forward. And I will have one vote of uh, 16 votes in all those decisions. One of the things that I do have uh, happily have experienced is, or not so happily, I guess, is uh, being in Ottawa and watching the complete fiasco that's led to a provincial inquiry into the way they handled their LRT project. So I've got some uh, good insights there. And the bottom line, I think, really is we still haven't had anybody say specifically what the cost will be on the residential tax bill. I think it will be 2 3 4% increase. I'm not sure the public is ready for that, but we'll wait and see how those decisions uh, that are forthcoming will be dealt with by council. So would you support the LRT or still oppose it? Well, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure, Scott, you've, you've heard enough from me yeah, yeah. about the LRT. I mean, the day one, I went right up to the engineer, Jill Stephen, who's head of the department uh, looking at the LRT, and I said, Jill, support light rail transit. It's in the wrong place. It should go up to down, not east to west. And, you know, I made my argument, and I still argue that if you want to build one, there are better places to build it than down King Street. Because what about what about the fact? And, and I'm all for that, Bob. I, I agree with you 100. percent The you know the uh, B lines build before the A line. However, yeah. uh, up the mountain, whatever, way more uh, challenging, way more expensive. Not the way to start. Your thoughts? No. It, it, if they did it the way I mapped it out, you could have uh, Mountain of Stony Creek with direct go transit. And you would have an, L- an LRT that would connect in the route that I suggested with the airport. So that th- those facts are really not to be argued. What's before us now is the project at hand, and the council is going to make decisions on the issues that come before them, such as the cost of operation and maintenance, and the real cost based on, as everybody knows, the increases that have occurred right across the board, uh, in, in construction costs. So so we'll see. Bob Bertina with us, former mayor of Hamilton and now a candidate for the mayor of Hamilton again. Bob, thanks for taking the time. Good luck. Yeah, well, have me on again because I think we've got lots more to talk about, but I really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. All right, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. So that's a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny says about the Toronto van attacker, Life has a different meaning to others. I'm retired. You work for a living. You pay taxes for food. And at the end of the year, you pay your dues. Look the way I do. He pays no taxes, no property taxes. He lives free, fed, free phone, television, room, books, and all supplies of living for free. If this is life, I wonder if the homeless would have another thought. Life. Wow. This sucks. Ooh, Nelly. Nighty-night. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.